Last week, we looked at the first half of Romans chapter 14, and we saw that Paul is writing to a Christian fellowship of Jewish and Gentile believers, and he's trying to smooth out the inevitable conflicts that happen between Christians. You put one sinner near another sinner, and you're going to get friction. Um, so especially as we try to live closely together in Christian fellowship and really love each other. And Paul introduced us in the first half of the chapter to some of the reasons why conflicts happen. And it's quite often over the little things, over the non-essentials, like what we eat and drink or how we mark special holidays. And Paul uh, caused us to imagine like two earnest Christians standing side by side who are both seeking to honor the Lord Jesus, uh, who might end up quarreling over these little things and they might end up judging and despising each other. And Paul taught the church that while our actions, our decisions are important, even in these little things, it's what's in our hearts that's much more important. And in our hearts, all Christians look the same. We do what we do out of love and out of gratitude to Jesus. So that was all in last week's message from the first half of Romans 14. Today, we're going to stay on that same theme and look at the second half of chapter 14. And Paul keeps going with this idea of disagreements between Christians. But here in the second half of the chapter, he develops it. So uh, not now, not only are we going to avoid quarreling with each other and avoid judging or despising one another, but now we're going to go a step further. And we're going to ask ourselves whether we can and should change our behavior in order to help our Christian brother or sister. So we're going to ask, how can we prefer one another in love? So let's open our Bibles. Uh, Romans chapter 14, page 948 of the church Bibles. Romans chapter 14. Let's look at this together. So Paul says, beginning in verse 13, Therefore let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. So that's his core message for today, what we're going to be thinking about as we examine the verses that follow. And what I want to show is that this is built on three very important beliefs in Paul's worldview. First of all, the belief that nothing is unclean in itself. Second, the belief that nothing in the world is as important as our relationship with God. And third, the belief that people's own people have power to uh, help or harm one another. All right, so those three beliefs. I want to trace the logic of those beliefs in this section of the chapter and then arrive back at the conclusion of why it's so important that we prefer one another in love. And finally, we'll look at what that looks like in practice. So the first core belief, Paul believed that nothing is unclean in itself. That's a direct quotation from verse 14. Paul says, I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself. And we've got to realize what a striking statement that is for a pious Jew to make. Because one of the core concerns of the Mosaic law uh, was to help people properly discern and distinguish between clean and unclean. And, and if they got unclean, it helped instruct them how to get clean again. The word unclean is used over a hundred times in the book of Leviticus alone. And in this statement, Paul seems to sweep a hundred verses of Leviticus aside when he says that nothing is unclean in itself. When Paul says it here, he delivers the statement with some force. He says, I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus. 
And I think when Paul says this, he means not only that he believes it with absolute certainty, he also probably means that he has come to believe it since he met the Lord Jesus. So it was not a belief of Paul's former Judaism. At one time, maybe Paul did believe that certain things were unclean in themselves, but now he's become convinced that nothing is. Now, I want to quickly say that Paul is not actually sweeping aside Leviticus here. Paul still thinks that the category of unclean is appropriate, that it still has meaning, uh, as he says at the end of verse 14. And Paul knows that part of what the blood of Jesus has done for all of us is to purify us and make us clean in the sight of God in a very Levitical way. Uh, but contrary to what an Old Testament Jew might have thought, Paul has come to the realization that nothing in the material world is unclean in and of itself. So pork is not in itself unclean. Blood is not in itself unclean for the simple reason that nothing exists that was not made by God. And God doesn't make unclean things. He only makes good things. So for anything we find in God's world, there is a right or a clean way to relate to it. And there's also a wrong or an unclean way to relate to it. But it's not an innate property of the thing itself. Paul's come to realize as the plan of God unfolds to unite nations together in Jesus. That what's unclean for him as a Jewish man under the law of Moses is not necessarily unclean for the Gentile next to him in the pew. Because clean and unclean is all about our relationship with God and not about our relationship with any material object. Because nothing is unclean in itself. Paul then goes on to say it is unclean for anyone who thinks it unclean. And that word thinks at the end of verse 14 is not just a casual opinion, but a careful, well-reasoned reckoning of the truth of things. So I think this first core belief is still important for us today. It's important so that we won't be fearful of anything in the created world, as if anything in God's created world is intrinsically harmful or evil. No, God made all things good, including in his original design, we ourselves. So we know that sin has corrupted God's design in us, but it has not robbed us of our essential value and dignity. So we must not hate ourselves, broken as we are, because God hates nothing that he has made, and we mustn't hate anything that God loves. Now, the statement that nothing is in itself unclean applies to the works of God and doesn't necessarily extend to the creations of men, right? So people have made things that are intrinsically bad, like torture devices and computer viruses. Um, but God's works are all good. And the key to whether we're receiving those properly as clean things lies in whether we are receiving them with thanksgiving. So we don't seize things for ourselves in defiance of God. Uh, the question we ask is, can I genuinely and honestly thank God and worship him for this thing in the way that I am using it? And am I using it in accordance with his plan and purpose in creating it as revealed in his word? And if the answers are yes, then our relationship with that thing is clean. So that's Paul's first belief, that nothing is unclean in itself. The second is that nothing in the world is as important as our own relationship with God. So as we look at the picture that we see emerging here, uh, we see something very striking. Uh, it, we see that it is we ourselves that are the most important creatures in all God's creation. And the most significant thing about us is the way that we can relate to God. 
So I want to look very closely at the end of verse 14, where Paul says, it is unclean for anyone who thinks it unclean. It is unclean for anyone who thinks it unclean. We've got to pause and unwrap the significance of that statement, because as Bible believers, we know that our thoughts and feelings (coughs) have no effect whatsoever on objective reality, right? The truth doesn't become true because I believe it, and it doesn't cease to be true because I disbelieve it. It's true whether I believe it or not, and it doesn't care how I feel about it. But here in verse 14, what an individual believes or decides seems to affect reality. Paul says it is unclean for anyone who thinks it unclean. And that seems to invest the thinker with an almost godlike power over objects. How can that be the case? What it must mean is that first, that humans are the most important part of God's material creation. Because humans here in this verse have superiority and mastery over all objects. The second thing it must mean is that our own relationship to God is the most important thing about us. Because our power to think things clean or unclean can only derive from our relationship with God and particularly our obedience to God. It's only unclean for us because God has forbidden it to us. And if that obedience has this kind of decisive power over the material world, then it's the most significant thing that can be said about us. That's maybe a little heady and theological. Um, But the fundamental dignity of our humanity then is the way that we relate to God personally. And so if we think of it in those terms, then what Paul says in verse 22 makes sense when he says, the faith that you have, keep between yourself and God. If If that's true and that's a good command, then what it suggests is that the faith itself is the real treasure. It's not anything that the faith might do or accomplish in the world. And the relationship with God himself is the real treasure, regardless of who else sees it or knows about it. So keep that faith between yourself and God. So for God, he doesn't view faith as a means to an end. He sees faith as the whole enchilada. Uh, Paul goes on in verse 22, blessed is the one who has no reason to pass judgment on himself for what he approves. And that describes a state of having a settled conscience, a conscience that tells us that everything we eat and drink and wear or use is received cleanly and with thanksgiving. And Paul says when we have that state of settled conscience in ourselves, that state is pure blessedness. And that state accomplishes nothing other than a right relationship with God. So again, we see that having a right relationship with God is the most central, important thing about our existence. So Paul finishes the thought in verse 23, whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats because the eating is not from faith for for whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. And the obvious conclusion to that statement is that everything a Christian says or does must proceed from faith. So that means that faith isn't just a muscle that we use on Sunday mornings when we come to church. It's not just a set of beliefs about what will happen to us later after we die. It means that faith is a moment by moment trust in God, a right relationship with God that calls every other decision of our lives into alignment with it. So your decision about what job you take must proceed from faith. What time you set your alarm in the morning proceeds from faith. What you eat for breakfast, whether you go to the gym, and so on and so on through the day, every decision coming from faith. 
And as Christians, as children of God, none of those decisions are ours to make apart from our faith in God. Um, God is interested in every decision of our lives, not just where we go to church or what songs we like to sing to him. And that doesn't mean that he dictates every detail, like how we have our eggs or what kind of socks we wear. But it does mean that God has the right to lead us in even the tiny things like that and to not operate out of our faith in him at those moments as uh, would be, as Paul says, sin. And it would be to forget that our own relationship with God is the most important thing about us and our most precious treasure to protect. So I have uh, two little stories to illustrate this. And the first one's kind of silly and the second one's more serious. Um, so I actually knew a guy uh, in another church who was in fact told by God to wear a certain color socks. Um, <laughs> Several years ago, he told me that he had only once heard God speak to him in an audible voice, just one time. And it happened on a Sunday morning while he was getting dressed for church. And the one time that God spoke aloud to him, what God said was, wear black socks today. <laughs> Serious. Uh, so my friend did what God said. And when he got to church, the greeter said, oh, good. I'm so glad you're here. The acolyte is sick. Can you stand in for him? And so my friend stood in and he was very glad that he was wearing black socks. Um, and he remains convinced that it was actually God's voice that he heard. He can't really understand why that was the only thing God had to say to him, but uh, <laughs> there it is. Um, so as, tr as tiny and trivial as that situation was, I'm really proud of my friend for allowing even that minuscule decision to proceed from faith. Uh, the second story is much more significant because our bishop, Neil, was told by God many years ago to stop drinking coffee decades ago. He used to be a very enthusiastic coffee drinker, several cups a day, uh, and the Lord spoke to him and told him to stop entirely cold turkey. And he did. Our bishop refrained from drinking any coffee for more than 25 years, while he still lovingly made a pot of coffee every morning for his wife. And of course, he's done far more costly things for the Lord Jesus than that. Um, but don't you want to be governed by a bishop who would say yes to Jesus on a detail like that, who would allow every decision of his day to proceed from his faith? When we look at that, can't we just see in that little detail that his own faith is genuine and trustworthy? So Paul's first core belief in this passage is that nothing is unclean in itself. And the second is that nothing in the world is as important as our own relationship with God. And so now we come to the third belief, the heart of this passage, that we have the power to help or to harm one another. And the extent of this power seems quite alarming. First, in verse one, Paul says, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or a hindrance in the way of a brother. And those words, we just, we hear the resonance of what, uh, when it talks about Jesus as the stone the builders rejected. It calls him a stumbling stone and a rock of offense, the same Greek words. So when we think about causing a brother to stumble, we're not talking about a minor trip, you know, whoopsie. Uh, it's a serious and damaging fall. And then again, in verse 15, Paul warns, your brother might be grieved by what you eat. That word means deeply troubled and sorrowful. And then later in the same verse, he adds, by what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. The Greek word for destroy there is apolemi, to kill or cause to perish. It's the root, it's the root of the name of the demon Apollyon, the destroyer. 
Do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. And once more, in verse 20, Paul says, do not for the sake of food destroy the work of God. This one's a different Greek word. It means to knock down, tear down, or dissolve. So Paul's saying, do not for the sake of food drive a wrecking ball into the building project of God. So when you put all this together, it sounds pretty terrifying. Our power to harm each other seems like far more than we should be safely given. Um, and as I talk about it, I do feel the need to balance it with other things Paul says in Romans. Uh, things like Jesus is the savior, that he is mighty to save, that all the work of salvation is done for us by Jesus on the cross, that nothing we do or say adds to that work in any way. And also to add Jesus's own words, that his followers are safe and secure with him. He said that none shall pluck them out of my hand. So as we think about the overall picture of uh, how God saves us, we should temper Paul's severe warnings a little bit with these other comforts of our security in Christ. Uh, and that helps us to not completely panic. Uh, but nonetheless, Paul here is demanding to be taken seriously, isn't he? And to drive home the severe consequences of not acting lovingly toward our brothers and sisters. He says in verse 15, if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you are no longer walking in love. By what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. So do not allow a very unimportant thing like eating to harm a very precious thing like faith. Do not even come close to harming it. That's the main lesson Paul wants the church to take home from Romans 14. So in order to finish unpacking Paul's instructions in this chapter and to bring all this home for us today, I want to illustrate it with an example. We were here Wednesday night uh, with the Bible study group um, and I asked them, what sort of instances do you think come up in the church today where this teaching would apply? And the main one that they came back with was the example of alcohol. So I want to talk about that again today. Um, I do think it's a big one in the American church today. Uh, I think all of us will know some churches that teach that Christians shouldn't drink any alcohol at all. Uh, other churches teach that Christians can drink alcohol in moderation. So what I asked my Bible study to, group to do was, first of all, to come up with all the very best Christian reasons they could think of why Christians would not drink any alcohol. And they came back with plenty. And there may even be more. But what they came back with was, uh, because it's so commonly associated with crime and ungodly behavior, because of past addiction, because of the sin of drunkenness and the command to flee temptation, because it's expensive and might be an unwise use of resources, because it's a poison that damages your body, because buying it supports a corrupt and exploitative industry, because of the appearance of evil, or because of loving a Christian brother or sister who is avoiding it for one of the other reasons, right? It's an impressive Bible study group. Um, so there are plenty of good and godly reasons to avoid alcohol altogether, and any one of them by itself could be a persuasive reason, and there are surely others besides. Then I asked the group for the good and godly reasons to drink alcohol in moderation. And they answered, because Jesus did, and because he turned water into wine at a wedding, because it's included in the things that God created good for our enjoyment, and because evil shouldn't be able to take those good things away, because it's one of the few gifts of God that's directly praised in Scripture. God gave wine to gladden the heart of man, because it's recommended by Paul to Timothy as a health benefit, <laughs> that he should take a little wine for his stomach because of his frequent ailments. So they made a pretty strong biblical case uh, th th for uh, Christians drinking alcohol and a strong case against as well. So where we as individuals come down on that question is going to have a lot to do with our own past 
and uh, the community that we now belong to. So next I asked the Bible study group to imagine two Christians who were close friends sitting down to dinner together. And one was convinced that he should never drink alcohol for the best reason you can think of. And the other was convinced that he was free to drink alcohol for the best reason you can think of. And as they sit down to dinner together, they both wonder silently whether alcohol will be served with the meal. And the question I put to them is whose preference should dominate? And what should Christian love look like in this situation? And we agreed that a bad outcome would be that they just don't talk about it. And the one who drinks alcohol just goes ahead and drinks it. And in doing so, deeply offends his friend. Then there's a real chance that the alcohol becomes what verse 1 calls a stumbling block. It inserts a wedge between the friends. They start to doubt one another's faith. And worst case, they start to doubt, they start to doubt their own faith. The one who doesn't drink any alcohol goes home and tells his wife how offensive it was. And verse 16 comes to pass that when you what you regard as good is spoken of as evil. Notice that what could have been a non-problem exploded into a big problem. Both of these friends love Jesus and are thinking biblically about how to honor him. And given the enormous grace of our common life in Jesus, what a tragic, unnecessary disaster it would be for them to fall out over this. So instead of that bad outcome, love calls the Christian who feels free to drink to abstain while in the presence of his brother. Why is it that way around? Why does that preference dominate? And the reason is because that solution offends neither person's conscience. The person who doesn't drink can't choose to drink out of love without offending his own conscience. But the, one, the other can refrain out of love without hurting his conscience. So that's the way it needs to go. They take the path, they can both walk together without either conscience being offended. And if that's not my preference, I don't grumble or complain about it. Would I grieve my brother and destroy the work of God for the sake of getting my way? Heaven forbid. So to bring in a couple of other examples, if I'm with a Catholic friend on Friday during Lent, I'm not going to eat a hamburger in front of him while he's fasting for meat. Or if I'm having dinner with a Messianic Jewish friend, I'm not going to serve bacon. I'll have a care for my friend's conscience and do everything in my power to encourage them forward without stumbling. Even if they really don't care what I do, I'm still going to prefer their way out of simple politeness because it's the way of love. And I think with this rule of our common life together, Paul helps us to avoid pitfalls and to continue growing in trust and intimacy with one another, which is what we all long to do. So hopefully Paul's been persuasive and this way of love and preferring one another now seems obvious to us. Uh, I've been sharing with you examples that are familiar and most of us have been navigating these for years. But today in our context here at Incarnation, we have some new ways to prefer one another in love in accordance with Romans 14. And I think they will center on our desire to be a reconciled multi-ethnic community. Romans was written to a multi-ethnic community and chapter 14 was born out of the need for Jewish and Gentile reconciliation. So it's going to be just what we need right now as we come together as a multi-ethnic community. We're each going to bring with us different ways of worshipping and drawing near to God that are important to us. So these might be songs in different styles or songs in different languages, preaching that is longer or shorter or more intellectual or more passionate with more or less response and energy coming back from the congregation and prayer that is more silent and personal or more open and heartfelt. 
It's also going to include the special days that are on our calendars. Which ones are going to be recognized? How will they be celebrated? Those decisions are crucial to making us feel at home in a community. And we all of us have our own preferences, ways that we have firmly decided help us the most. And those are always going to be the ways that we choose and vote for. But let's realize from Romans 14 that if we get things the way we prefer all the time, then it's pretty likely our brother or sister is rarely or never getting it the way they prefer. So the way of love in Romans 14 would have us seek out the hopes and preferences of one another and choose them instead in support of one another's faith, which is the most important thing in the world. And I know so many of you have been doing that for years, and I applaud you, saints of God, for all the times you have done that. And I call for even more energy in preferring one another as we continue to grow together. It will not only teach us the way of love, but it will also do us all good as we learn more about Jesus through one another's faith. So then, says Paul in verse 19, let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. Amen.